The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Well, it is the Enviro Show, and I'm Nancy Richards, and I'm here together with Kim Winter and Derek Fordyce, and we're also together with you. And if you'd like to give us a call during the next hour, you're welcome. 0892 10 2010. And just FYI, this show is podcast, so catch it later if you'd like to. Well, what have we got on the show? First up, the sea. Filmmaker and diver Craig Foster is going to tell us all about his sea change project. And then we move from below the sea to the sea on a plate. We'll be talking to company leader of the Ocean Basket restaurants. She's Grace Harding, and they apparently buy absolutely no fish from South Africa at all. And we'll also be hearing from one fisherman, which will give us a bit of a clue as to why. Then after that, we move to the land. Barbara Kingsolver, the US writer, talks about her year of growing food intensely in her book called Animal Vegetable Miracle. And finally, a man who uh, makes a living from lettuce. He's Ivo Roggin of Living Leaves and El Dorado Lettuce Farm, I think it is. So we'll be finding out all about that. Just a little bit of eco-info for you. Couldn't resist some of these things. The World Wildlife Fund has done some research on the option of fracking for shale gas as an alternative, a cheap energy alternative. If you want to find out more about that report, and it's quite in-depth, check the site, which is www.f.org.za forward slash economic reality of shale gas. Economic reality of shale gas. And two recent uh, ivory smuggling convictions in Cape Town indicate that the city is being used as a storage and transit destination. That's according to environmental writer Melanie Gosling, who says that wildlife tracking, uh, trafficking sorry, is estimated to be worth more than 285 billion rand a year, and it ranks fourth after drugs, weapons and human trafficking. Ooh. And Lewis Gordon Pugh, my goodness me, he's completed the world's most southerly swim at Cape Adair. He's, uh, he, as you know, is the United Nations Environment Programme patron of the oceans. And today he completed the most southerly swim in human history. He swam 500 metres off the coast of Cape Adair in the Antarctic Ocean, breaking the world record by swimming in minus 1.7 degrees of water, the coldest sea water can be before it actually freezes, wearing only a Speedo. He said, bless him, it was an exceptionally tough swim. I had to navigate around sharp ice and just couldn't keep my head down and swim. Warming up, though, warming me up, though, is the thought that my actions can encourage world leaders to come together and preserve this wonderful, important part of the world. Go, boy, is what I say. Wow. And just because it's the start of the Chinese New Year of the sheep, how's this for something to know? As the Chinese people celebrate, what they do is travel. They travel an estimated 3.6 billion passenger trips, turning their Chinese, turning their roads into and airports and train stations into congestion hotspots over this 40-day period, which is uh, the annual Chunyun. And uh, this spring festival transport uh, is the largest human migration in the world, which is quite something. And when they're not traveling, what they're doing is eating to the tune of $100 billion uh, spent on shopping and eating out during the New Year lunar period, about twice as much as Americans spent during last year's Thanksgiving weekend. It kind of makes you wonder how heavy Chinese New Year weighs in on energy, fuel and other consumptions. But if you're a Google user, I have to draw attention to this. How much did you love the leaping sheep on their opening page today? Just love that sheep. 
And just on sheep, just FYI, a report from the NSPCA uh, say a routine inspection of the GWK abattoir and feedlot in Da'ar in the Northern Cape revealed the ill treatment of lambs and sheep through extremely rough handling and bodily injuries caused by inept shearing. Criminal charges in terms of the Animal Protections Act will be laid against the manager of the feedlot. Well, just saying something that you might like to know. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. Craig Foster, together with his brother Damon, is a documentary filmmaker and a diver. And their project, Sea Change, is ongoing. And pictures from it can actually be seen on the seawall right across the road from where we are on the Seapoint Promenade. Well, they've made lots of other films. In fact, they've made 11, and all of them are featuring in the Sense Africa Film Festival, which is on at the Labia in Cape Town this week until Sunday, I think. But I spoke to Craig earlier and asked him a little bit more about the Sea Change project, notably the name. Well, Sea Change was actually a phrase coined by Shakespeare in The Tempest, and it means a transformation uh, wrought through nature. Um, So we liked that idea. My partner on the whole project, Ross Freiling, came up with that name, and we thought it was uh, appropriate because we've experienced a huge transformation ourselves through ethically going into the ocean, diving pretty much every day for the last four years, and that was that's kind of um, the basis of the inspiration of the whole project, and at the same time as, as diving every day, and we're diving without wetsuits winter and summer, so we cold adapting ourselves, really immersing in nature in the deepest possible way we've been able to do. And at the same time, we've spent almost a year recreating a slice in the life of a family living along the coast here 75,000 years ago at this extraordinary time period where we see incredible innovations uh, happening in the archaeological record. Mm. It's a combination of this incredible archaeology we have in South Africa, absolutely world-class, cutting-edge, with human us immersing ourselves in the environment with getting practical knowledge and then working with some of the top marine biologists in the world here at UCT to bring it all together, this incredible African story that has sort of multi- uh, disciplinary science and indigenous knowledge system. Yes, it sounds like the mother of all projects, I have to say. There's a great deal. I mean, never mind sea change. It sounds like a number of sea changes that in that period of time you will have uh, uncovered. How did you, from conception, how did you go about it? How have you planned it? Or is it a, a, a you know, sort of combination of the work that you've been doing over this long period of time? You know, my brother and myself, um, Damon and myself, spent many years up in the central Kalahari and northeastern Namibia, working with a number of incredible Sarn groups, Bushman groups. And, you know, if you, we, we had the privilege of tracking and hunting and gathering with really masters of that environment, um, extraordinary people. And you do get a sense of the original human design uh, from that. So we drew, drew from that, but you can't necessarily think that people, you know, hunter-gatherers would be the same as people in the Middle Stone Age. This is a long time ago, 75 to 100,000 years ago. Um, so you have to use, of course, uh, this incredible archaeology uh, we have here. And I've been very fortunate to 
worked with uh, Professor Chris Henshelwood, who's just dedicated his entire life to excavating these caves on the south coast here and really putting together these incredible scientific papers that give you this amazing sense of what life was like um, so long ago. Yeah, just give us an idea of some of the sea changes. I suppose one of the things that has changed dramatically is that back in the day there was, uh, you know, the whole issue of water and the sea was was greatly revered it was symbolic there were all sorts of it had all sorts of powers now to a large extent it's seen as a, a dumping ground quite literally and uh, and simply a source of food is, is attitude change something that's part of your project i think when it's a natural human thing when you are close to an environment and you're close to many many species in that environment you build up something that the song called Ropes to God. And if you can imagine, you know hundreds of species in your environment intimately. And you have these bonds, or what they see as these little threads running to all these animals. And when those threads come together, that's what they call the Ropes to God, which is this kind of uh, communication with, with oneness, with the whole environment, where the human being is completely immersed and integrated into that matrix. And that's how we designed. And when, you, when you're living like that, and we've only had tiny glimpses of that, it's, a, it's an incredibly beautiful, ecstatic existence. Now, when you have those connections, of course, you're very unlikely to want to damage that environment. You want to be nurturing it. It's your family. Uh, you wouldn't be wanting to harm or kill, or, or as you say, use your family as a dumping ground for toxins or waste or whatever. But unfortunately, our society is very different. We've been severed. Those ropes or, or threads to those species have been severed. We don't have the intimate connections with them. And then it's very difficult to love and care for something that you don't know uh, well. It's, a, it's a, just a natural human, human tendency. So really what we're trying to do is build back some of those relationships, those threads and those bonds with with nature and with these incredible species that we're so lucky still to have alive here on the coast. Mm. We've got an amazingly, relatively intact ecosystem, unlike many places on Earth. A lot of us don't know the, you know, the intimate, we don't know the sea intimately, but you guys do, because you, as you say, you have immersed yourself in, in it literally and figuratively. And the photographs that we have along the beachfront here at Sea Point are are you know they're windows for for those of us who haven't seen it like you've seen it for us to have a look at there are some extraordinary pictures some which seem to be manipulated some which seem and maybe they are maybe they aren't some which seem to be just literally as they are uh, just tell us a little bit about those pics uh, none of the pictures are manipulated. Oh, they're really not. Gosh, <laughs> uh, which, which ones are you thinking of? I can't. I can't think off the top of my head, but okay, I remember well, thinking uh, it okay, cannot well, be I real. What maybe what you, you see? What happens is for the first say two years, we entered the water. Most of the animals would be moving away from us, getting out of our way. On about the third year of going in every day, amazingly, some of the animals started coming towards us, and eventually. Animals like the otters, even the cephalopods, like the cuttlefish, the octopus, some fish, uh, sharks, would actually come up to us and of their own accord make physical contact with our bodies. Um, and perhaps that's where you, you're seeing something and you think maybe we've manipulated or uh, 
but it's actually these yes. animals approaching us. And well, it, it wasn't so much that. It was some of the quality of the pictures, which is almost surreal. They're like paintings, extraordinary pictures. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we're just trying to um, use the best light. Perhaps they're the images of the early human recreations where we've almost burnished the bodies of these wonderful actors with red ochre because we find red ochre in the archaeological deposit and very likely to be used as a, a body paint for sun protection and as an insect repellent. And it gives that wonderful burnished red extraordinary look to the skin that can look, yes, unusual. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. I mean, we, we know that creatures or, you know, human beings are designed to live on Earth, but um, they certainly look very at home under the water as you have them, as does the young man, the very young man, who has been doing a great deal of diving. Tell us about him. Uh, that's, uh, are you referring to my son? Mm. <laughs> that's my son, Tom. He has been diving with me since four years old and in the last uh, four years very intensely. And, you know, with a child in the water, a child who's grown up with no fear of the ocean, no fear of sharks, uh, is it completely relaxed in that environment. He can dive extremely deep. He can hold his breath for a long time. And the animals do react differently to children. A lot of the, the, especially the sharks, have an extremely sensitive system of picking up uh, muscle tension and all sorts of very, very sensitive systems to pick up what the human body is doing. And because the child is so relaxed, Tom is so relaxed, they are very open to approaching him. And we had a number of animals approaching him, and he's able to kind of hold these sharks in a way that they just relax in his arms and don't struggle, even though they're you know, quite a lot stronger than he would be. So it was amazing for me to see and watch and photograph him naturally just doing this. And you can imagine people in the past you know, I think doing similar things. And when I've looked into the anthropological record, I've found incredible ancient relationships that humans have had with other creatures. In certainly in the in the Kalahari, um, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, the famous anthropologist, has done amazing work with um, Bushmen hunting cooperatively with lions and sharing the meat. We see um, in Bangladesh people still hunting crop cooperatively with otters and sharing fish. The same thing with barracuda in Hawaii, with dolphins in Mauritania and North Africa, and I can go on and on. Mm -hmm. So we've had these incredible cooperative relationships with animals in the past. What we would consider wild animals, and are still, they're still wild. These aren't pets, not like dogs and cats, or that's a natural progression from what I'm talking about. We've had this incredible reciprocal relationship with nature for a very, very long time. And when you immerse yourself uh, for a long period of time, I think that slowly starts to come back, especially uh, with children, because they are much more open. And uh, he's not particularly surprised when a, an animal swims up to him, whereas an adult would maybe react or think it was you know, unusual and then maybe put the animal off. Mm. In fact, there is a picture of him holding... I forget what it is, holding a creature. Uh, yes, it's a, um, that's a striped cat shark. Mm, uh, he's particularly fond of them, and he knows the individual animals by their um, slight differences in their stripes. He can tell what they're feeling by watching their eyes and their vestigial gills. He, he understands animals very well.
Is there, you know, I understand the sort of the physical thing that happened to human beings when they go underwater, but, you know, psychologically, is there a difference? You know, is there, I mean, you talk about the cooperative relationships that we have had with creatures in the past. It seems that human beings today um, don't necessarily have cooperative uh, relationships. They have rather sort of confrontational relationships. Does something happen to you when you're underwater, though? Do you feel more, perhaps more humble? A lot of incredible things happen to the human body and mind when they go into water. There is a quite a strong sea change, a transformation, especially if the water is a bit cooler. The um, heartbeat drops. Many, many things happen. And what I've noticed is that you actually um, go into quite a profound altered state. You don't think you are because you're just concentrating on the water and the, the cold and, you know, in a liquid form. But it actually changes the cognitive functioning of the brain. And there, I know there's a whole lot of detailed science that has looked at that that I won't go into. But um, if, you, you know, if you ask any person who's about to enter the water, just take note of how you're feeling now, and after we come out in half an hour, whatever it is, take note of your feeling, how you feel. And, and the transformation is incredible when you actually take note of that. It is really profound. It can change your whole day, just to 10 minutes in the water, especially if it's cold. The cold gives you a very, very strong elevated mood. And you know, it sends all sorts of interesting chemicals to the brain and makes you feel good. Um, it is, it's a really is, I'm amazed that again and again how it transforms people. And I think that's one of the reasons why millions of people flock to the ocean mm -hmm. every year. It's an unconscious pulling to this incredible place that makes you feel really good. Yeah, I must down to the sea again. Um, the Sea Change Project is, I think, is an ongoing project, but for many years you and your brother have been producing the most remarkable collection of films, which have been showcases, sort of retrospective, um, here in Cape Town for the last week. I think we're coming to the last few days of it now. Just tell us how many films, which films, and where are they showing? Um, there are 11 films. They are all now showing at the Labia. As you say, it's the last um, few few nights. They're films like The Great Dance, which was our work up in the central Kalahari with those wonderful Po and Kwikwe on tracking masters. There's films about sharks. There's films about African cosmology, cosmic Africa. There's My Hunter's Heart, which is the follow-up to The Great Dance, sort of 10 years on. There's films um, about climate change in Africa. Um, so it's just wonderful um, series of films where we were lucky enough to go on the first diving expedition with crocodiles in the Okavango Delta. Uh, and then we met this extraordinary man in Central America who had this 23-year um, relationship with a giant crocodile and could swim and ride on it and communicate with it at a high level. And then there's the film on uh, our wonderful South African um, animal communicator, Anna Breitenbach. Mm, mm. Um, so there's a whole range of things, but the general theme is human-animal interaction and trying to look at that from many angles in, in hopefully a fairly interesting and deep way. Fascinating. That was Craig Foster, and he'll be talking, incidentally, about the Sea Change Project at the Labia Cinema 
on uh, on Sunday night at 6.30. So if you want to get yourself along there and hear a little bit more. And, uh, and don't forget, if you'd like to see the exhibition of those pictures, they're on the Seapoint Promenade wall, right opposite the SABC here in Seapoint. Check the site, which is seachangeproject.com for more info. Uh, incidentally, Sea Change, he mentioned, comes from the Tempest. Let me just read you Ariel's song from which the line comes. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change. There you go. Now you know. Well, in a minute, we're going to be talking about the sea as it supplies the ocean basket chain of restaurants uh, who buy absolutely none of their fish from South African waters. And we'll find out a little bit more about that. But recently, producer Kim Winter happened to be in Colt Bay and she spoke to fisherman Nazim Samai, who's been fishing since he was 11 years old. And this gives us a little bit of a clue as to what's happening to our fish stocks. It's a youngster, man. And the first night I went out with him for fishing, Caught my two lights is full. I caught myself to sleep. I couldn't fish anymore. I was lost to sleep. By that time, it was a lot to fish. Eh? Really. I mean, compared to the these days, a cob is a lot weaker, less. You know what I mean? But it's all the time, the seasons, man. People, small fish come in, the fish come all in. That's the reason why. You can't say it's, there isn't fish. Because it's all the time fish. You can never... The, what the people say, you like, the fish... Uh, get less and less. It's not that if there's no feeding, they won't come in the bay. You understand? They come in big school. You can't stop fish from breeding. Man. If a fish don't like this place, you won't come in here. If there's feed, food for him, he will come every time in the same place. Why we are, all these years I've been working, we know what time of the year that fish will be there. And we go there and he's there. Like the boats I see here, the Japanese boats and that. South Africa is a nice place. But they're giving still our fish away to other countries. You know what I mean? Other boats come in here and they catch our fish because their countries are out fish. You know what I mean? They haven't got fish. They can say about that side, yeah. But yeah, but us, we got a rich world of fish, man. Our country is rich wherever you look. But just other boats come here and they catch our fish. When we go fishing long line and catch tuna and that, but you must see in town when they come in how many fish they bring in and export our all the time. We all export our fish overseas. But they come to catch it here by our country. We don't go out to Japan and catch their fish. You know I mean? Tokyo and how much fish is there and they say the fish is extinct. Because they don't give the people the permits to go fish there. Well, there you go. Something to think about. And uh, that was Nazim Samai, a fisherman ever since he was 11 years old. Interesting to hear his views on the seafood industry. Well, the other day, talking of the seafood industry, I had lunch with Grace Harding. She's the company leader of Ocean Basket. And we ate a very tasty spread, I must say, which include something called bassa, or bassa, I think it was, which is a farmed fish from Vietnam. Well, um, the Ocean Basket, what they do, they serve something like a million people a month here in South Africa. And 18 million people worldwide. So if you're one of those million people, you may like to know what you're eating. And we've got Grace on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Grace. Hi, good evening. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. And thank you for a delicious lunch the other day. Uh, such a pleasure. <laughs> Grace, were you listening to what our fishermen had to say then? Yes. Yeah, yes. interesting, eh? Yeah, you know, um, it's very interesting because if you look at the tonnage of fish or seafood required... Um, by a company like ours with nearly 200 stores worldwide. Um, it is a pity that we can't get what's required out of our own waters. 
And there's a lot of work to be done um, locally with people like the DTI and with um, the other big seafood sort of fishing brands. Um, we obviously don't own uh, boats or anything like that. Mm. But when you look at the volumes that are required, I think it's the same for many other industries, even the fruit industry, where so much of our good product and produce is exported. Um, but worldwide, there are certain countries that are known for certain types of seafood. And, you know, they have the, the license to catch the tonnage. And that's why sustainability is so important, because in our waters, um, it's a combination of, yes, a lot of the seafood is getting exported, but it's also about the restriction in terms of how much you can take out the sea. I mean, you even need a license if you're going to go on holiday and fish off the rocks today, and that wasn't needed 10 years ago. Yeah, it, there are a whole lot of issues here, aren't there? I mean, there's a quota system, at, um, and obviously all our best fish is being exported, but um, the fact of the matter remains is that there are fewer fish in the sea, or are there? What, what, what's your take? No, they definitely are. I mean, um, our seafood specialist, uh, Rulof Brink, um, who was at the lunch, um, you know, he educates us the whole time, and there are definitely fewer fish if we keep on fishing them the way we are. So there's various ways of fishing, from trawling to line fishing. And aqua farming is the thing of the way of the future. And it's not about that in the future we're all going to eat farmed fish. Mm. But we need a combination of the farming and the sea fishing so that we give the sea a time to replenish itself. Um, and we've got to be responsible. And the two work hand in hand. And there are a lot of aqua farming initiatives. We work very closely with SASI. And um, we are getting more and more involved to ensure that um, there's responsible and sustainable fishing. But it's a huge problem. It yeah. really is. Worldwide, yeah. it is. Yeah. And it would be such an awful pity to see no more fish uh, on our plates because, we, you know, so many of us absolutely love it. And it's so good for you. Just on the subject of aqua farming and, and uh, farmed fish. There was an issue, I think, just recently, and I think that you uh, fell on you to sort of deal with it. I think yes. there was somebody who complained that yes. they should been served river fish instead yes. of seafood, as yes. it were. Just, just make the distinction. Well, it's, it's fairly obvious, but make the distinction for us and tell us the argument there. So um, a customer did uh, in Cape Town went to a store and she was served a platter with a bassa, the pingasius. And it is a freshwater aquafarmed product. Um, and our menu stipulated that it was a sustainable option. Um, what was quite correct from the customer, and I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's only by listening to your customers that you know how to enhance your product. Mm. Is she said, but how can you serve a freshwater fish on an ocean or a seafood type platter? Um, so there are, there are many ways to skin the cat. I see today Chris Murdike placed an, an article on this community saying that there's no dog meat in a hot dog. So um, obviously this has sparked off many, many debates now. Uh, so we acknowledge that there was an opportunity to communicate with more detail, and she was 100% right. Our new menu is rolling out at the end of March, and we've put a hell of a lot more detail about sustainability and farming we only have the one product. We may introduce others. I mean, trout is freshwater farmed. Salmon is farmed. There are many, many farmed fish. And we actually have to serve a combination of caught fish from the sea and farmed if we're going to be a responsible seafood restaurant. Yeah. 
Well, and, you know, in some ways it may have been whatever the, her reasoning was. It, it's actually been an opportunity to educate people because I Absolutely. think, you know, when you think seafood, you just think seafood, you, you know, good on her for sort of making Absolutely. the distinction there. But tell us a little bit about the, the sustainable option. Aqua farming, um, from what I understand, we, you know, worldwide, it's now like 50-50 aqua farmed, uh, or at least, yes, farmed fish versus wild caught fish. Mm. It, the way of the future, but is aqua farming safe? Is it okay? If it's done properly. I mean, mm. before we're allowed to put um, a, a product like Vasa on our platters, I mean, it took nearly a year for that product to be approved by all the health authorities and the environmental authorities. So if it's done properly, it's safe. If it's not, it's not safe. You have to be careful. Uh, you certainly have to be careful about aqua farming. Um, I don't think it's as um, dangerous as stuff like mad cow disease, mm. um, which, is, which is also, I mean, that's a form of farming. But uh, there are stringent um, procedures in place, and there are tests that are carried out. Uh, our buyers go to the aqua farms, and we inspect them ourselves. I mean, we handed out a brochure at the lunch, um, which we'll also put on our website that shows what the farm looks like so that people can see it's clean, it's well-managed, the staff have got proper gloves, they have masks. You have to be really, yeah. really careful. Yeah. And already there's a predisposition to be nervous about seafood. Um, but over the years, since all the problems with the cows and stuff, um, you know, people are almost more inclined to eat seafood. But, it, you know, people will smell. They'll have a look at their fish and they'll smell it. But I don't think aqua farming is any more or less dangerous than not taking care of a freshly caught product yeah i guess the, the point is that you know the key there is that you do go along and you inspect these places and yes and i read that that mm. that uh, little piece about the basa or pink pink what do you call it pink, pink gaseous, is pink the gaseous. Scientific name, yeah. Yeah. and it's from vietnam yes that product is from vietnam okay. we are looking at um supporting farming in south africa um mm. i mean obviously we want to do as much south african product as we can uh, but it's all about quantities and professionalism and thickness. And South Africa is getting there, um, and we will support aqua farming in this country, but it just doesn't supply us with the volumes that we need at the moment. Yeah, a million, feeding a million people a month here in South Africa, that is one hell of a lot of fish. Well, two questions then. Mm. If um, Where is the fish coming from? I mean, Vietnam, Vietnam you mentioned, I think Spain you mentioned. Where is it coming from? So um, our hake and kingclip usually comes from Namibia. Um, kingclip is a bycatch of hake. So when the hake is caught, um, kingclip sort of also swims into the net. And uh, our calamari um, is caught just off of Falklands. And uh, we are the biggest buyers of that particular type of calamari. We only buy a certain type of calamari. There are many, many types of calamari, everything from the rings to the different types of tubes. And then um, prawns, uh, the best prawn farms at the moment come from India. There's a few in Thailand. Uh, prawns are always farmed, prawns in this quantity. I mean, if you go on holiday to sort of Mauritius or Mozambique, you may get a few fresh prawns that are caught fresh, but the quantities are very low. Um, but we are going through like 1,000 tons of hake, over 2,000 tons of calamari. So we need to go to places that can give us the tonnage we require, otherwise people in different countries are going to taste a different product. Yeah. And it would be like McDonald's having a different 
patty everywhere in the world. That yeah. wouldn't work. <laughs> I can only imagine, though, that bringing in the fish, that, I mean, it ups the carbon footprint somewhat, but it, also, does it not make it quite expensive? Because your uh, prices are known to be quite affordable. We make them swim to us. <laughs> no, we're very conscious of a carbon footprint. I mean, um, we have um, restaurants in Dubai, Greece, Cyprus, Mauritius, and what we do is we look at the source of where the fish comes and we try everything to redirect it so it won't come all the way to our central distribution center and then get shipped all the way to another place. Mm. We're very, very conscious about that. And we're doing everything possible to reroute the product so that the carbon footprint impact is minimized. And I think on that very subject, two things. Um, you said that Kingclip is a byproduct. That's interesting. A bycatch, yeah. A bycatch of, of yeah. hake. Is Kingclip not orange listed on the Sassy? Yeah, a Kingclip is orange listed, and Sassy will almost authorize a certain amount that can be caught. Um, there are alternatives to Kingclip, and once again, we're busy educating customers. There's a product called Ling, which is a New Zealand product, but Kingclip is a very, very endangered. Fish, and we've committed that by 2017 all our fish is going to be green. Um, but we work closely with SASI. So even though something is orange listed, all that SASI is saying is customer be aware yeah. that there are limited quantities and be sure that where you're eating this fish, um, that SASI has approved it. Yeah. Um, and that's why King Clip is unpredictable. You, you can sometimes go into an ocean basket and be told there is no king clip, that there's the alternative. Um, and people love king clips, so that's becoming a, a tough thing to manage. People yeah. can often become quite frustrated with that. Yeah, they do love it, don't they? Mm. And I think, um, so by 2017, one can know quite comfortably that all the ocean basket will be green. Will be green. Yep. And I think, um, talking of years, is it not an auspicious year for you? Is it this year or is it last year that you turned 20 years old? No, this year we're turning 20. We ba oh. We're planning a big birthday bash. Um, we're going to go back to our roots and do a few crazy things, and um, it's this year that we're 20. Next year we, we get our key for 21, but we thought we'll celebrate a big one this year as well. Well, you all have to go swimming with a fish or do something mad like that. Grace, <laughs> thanks very much. If, if anybody you. else has sort of interactive questions that they would like to know directly, now that you are educating us, I think it's a jolly good thing that people know what's on their plate and where it's coming from. Absolutely. How the can, awareness is critical. Yeah. Can yeah. they get in touch with you on your website? Is your Facebook page? What's the best thing yeah, to do? Yeah, we've got a Facebook page, um, uh, Ocean Basket, and we, we look at it all the time. Mm. Uh, we have a customer call centre. People are welcome to email me directly. We have a seafood specialist, Rulof. Okay, um, tell you what, give me, give the, give us the call food. Uh, sorry, the, <laughs> give us the the call number. Okay, um, that's a very good question. I don't know the call numbers are hard. <laughs> Wait, tell you what, we'll use this one. O double one. It's an O something something. But let's do O double one. Yeah. Six double five one three double O. Okay. Um, and they can just ask for the customer desk. All right. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Kim's going to get those details just now, and I'll give them out later on. Okay. Brilliant. Lovely. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Lovely Grace. Lovely to you again. Lovely. You okay. take care. Good night. Cheers. Bye. Grace Harding, company leader of the Ocean Basket. Oceanbasket.com is their website. We'll find out all the details about the uh, customer call service number or whatever that expression is. We'll, we'll be finding out that just now. But uh, right now you're listening to the Enviro Show.
And the Portfolio Committee on Communications hereby invites institutions and or individuals to nominate a person to fill a vacancy of non-executive member to the board of the South African Broadcasting Corporation Limited, which arose from the resignation of a member of the board for the remainder of the term of office of the current board, 24th of September 2018. Nominees must have expertise and experience in broadcasting policy and technology, broadcasting regulation, media law, business practice and finance, journalism, entertainment and education, and labour issues. Nominations and inquiries must be addressed to the Committee Secretary, Mr Tembinkozi Ngoma, Portfolio Committee on Communications, email tngoma at parliament.gov.za, or fax to 086-522-5740. Telephonic inquiries can be made to 021 403-3733 or 083-709-8407. Closing date for nominations is Friday the 27th of February 2015 at 4 o'clock. Please note that nominees may be subjected to qualifications check and security clearance. Late submissions will not be considered. The Enviro Show on SAFM. Enviro show it is and don't say that we don't deliver. We've got the call centre number for the Ocean Basket, which is 0860 0860-3333-74. 0860-3333-74. So if you've got any queries uh, or questions or whatever it may be, 0860-3333-74. Well, we're moving on next. We've done our bit for the sea. Next, we're moving on to the land because in a minute we're going to be talking to the the man who's working with the Living Leaves Project, he's Ivo Rogin, and he's going to be talking about uh, he's going to be talking about lettuces from his El Dorado lettuce producers. But first, American writer Barbara King Solver has been in South Africa recently, talking about some of her many books. Amongst them, a book called Animal Vegetable Miracle, in which she talks about the year in which she and her family grew all their own food. My family has um, always been interested in food. You know, we eat it three times a day at least. We have a, a lively food culture in my household. Um, I grew up on a farm. Uh, Stephen um, lived on a farm when we met. And our daughters were raised kind of in a, in a sort of a culture of paying attention to where your food comes from. But we had never really specifically organized it in a way that would would kind of challenge us. So we made a move. Actually, we had been um, spending part of our time on this farm in Virginia. But when we moved there full time, we we just thought first, wouldn't it be fun if we tried to grow uh, most of what we ate? And then we sort of thought, how about if we spent a year? Not it's not about living off the land per se. But what if we spent a year trying to shorten the distance between ourselves and the sources of our food so thoughtfully that we would know the person who grew it or really know where it came from. And in many cases, the person who grew it would be us. Let's just try and see what happens. And the girls were really game for that. And then we said, well, as long as we're doing it, let's write a book about it because it could be really interesting. So we made our agreement and we started our year and um and we loved it and it was it was much it was a, it was more of an adventure than we expected in ways we didn't expect it wasn't uh people always say what did you miss it was so much not about what we gave up it was about what we gained it was really a year long exercise in mindfulness 
and gratitude where food is concerned. But when, because when you start organizing your meals, not from a recipe book, but from what's in the garden, what's in the garden, man, you just have some great meals, a lot of great meals. There must have been huge challenges. I mean, there were light moments. There were Lily's lovely layers. (laughs) Yes, our little girl started chicken business. There must have been times when, at the end of the day, you thought, "Oh, I just want to just want fish and chips, or I want to make a pasta, or something." Um, How challenging was it? I think because we had already, it wasn't like a, a, you know, a day and night kind of change. We had already been headed this direction. We already made pizzas, so we just made an institution of it. We just, every every Friday night, we'll make pizza. We just, we just tried to make it fun. We, we, and we didn't, we didn't make it odious because we didn't want to, you know, give the girls, you know, eating disorders or anything. We didn't want to guilt trip them. So if they went to a friend's house, they would eat whatever they wanted. You know, if they went to school, you know, and hadn't packed a lunch, they would eat what they ate. You know, we didn't, um, we didn't make it a rule bound kind of thing. We really made it more about what do we have and what can we do? And we just tried to make it fun. And what did you have? What did you eat? What did you grow? Oh, Lordy, so much. I mean, the things that you, the things that you expect, you know, we had tomatoes in the summer. We had lots and lots of zucchini, way too much zucchini. I don't know if that's a joke. Marrows, do you call them marrows? Baby marrows. Baby marrows. Um, Yes. Um, You know, there's this sort of economy of of, uh, marrows in the summertime where we live where people try to give them to each other because everyone has too many and the joke is that um, in a parking lot in summer you lock your car that's the only time you lock your car because someone might open the door and put in a bag of zucchini <laughs> um, um, so you know we, we had an abundance of the summer vegetables in summer we had asparagus in asparagus season which is the very very earliest spring we really discovered our local farmers market in a whole new way we became very good friends with every vendor in the farmer's market. And we really learned to make uh, make use of what there was. So when there were, were only in, in April, which is our spring, there were a lot of eggs. That's when uh, my grandmother says, uh, even a feather duster will lay an egg in April. So, you know, all the chickens are laying in April. So we had eggs, we had asparagus, and we had green onions. And that's just about all. So we made omelets. And they were fabulous, right? But it wasn't all about physical physical graft in the in the in the garden. It was also about your headspace. I mean, Steve, yeah. your husband, um, has written some very thought provoking pieces, uh, which have uh, a great deal of uh, a great deal more. Um, it's it's more of a thinking piece, isn't it? Right. We all. Um Stephen is a scientist, and he's actually he teaches environmental science, and he teaches sustainable agriculture. So he he knows a whole lot about the food industry, about GMOs, um, about uh, confined animal feeding operations, about just sort of the whole industrial pipeline, how it uses um, fossil fuels. So so that was his bailiwick. Our daughter, Camille, who was 17 at the time, undertook to, to write chapters about food, food culture, and recipes. There are re- recipes mm-hmm. in every chapter. And then I undertook to write the narrative. I was elected, you know, to tell the story. So it's a story. There's suspense. It's not whether or not we're going to survive because, I mean, there's the book. We did. But it's really more about things like, will our turkeys end up having sex? You know, it's sort of unexpected <laughs> unexpected anxieties do arise. But it was up to me to construct a narrative. So it's sort of 
purports to be a book about us, our family, and our year, but really, it's a book about the natural history of food, and it's a book that I think should be of interest to um, people who eat food. Which is a lot of them. So yeah, um, Stephen wrote his uh, little sections. They're not whole chapters, but they're little sections on specific aspects of the food industry, and you you learn a whole lot about food. And uh, most, I mean, some of it, of course, is gloomy news. But we're tired of hearing gloomy news about our food. So what this book is about is the the good news. How possible it is, and how delicious it is, to to eat locally. Well, there you go. Somebody from who can uh, certainly vouch for eating locally. That's Barbara King Solver, and uh, how perfectly fascinating she is. And that book once again is called Animal Vegetable Miracle. Do lay your hands on it if you considered eating uh, and growing your own food. And I guess we all should be doing that very thing, should we not? Well, finally, here on the Enviro Show on growing things. Next, it's time for our forage feature. In which tonight we're looking at lettuce from uh, somebody who's doing that very thing, growing it. He's Ivo Roggin of El Dorado Fresh Lettuce Produce, and he's also involved with the Living Leaves Project with Checkers. Well, we've got him on the line. Hi, Ivo. Hello, Nancy. Living Leaves. It sounds like a sort of. It sounds like a new Bible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing. Sorry about that. I, it suddenly occurred to me. Um, Ivo, tell us a little bit about the Living Leaves Project before we get on to lettuce itself. Sure, thank you, Nancy. Thank you for the opportunity to share this with you. Um, Living Leaves, the company was born roughly about four years ago. Where we did about two years of R&D. Um, it's a hydroponically grown lettuce. And uh, we were fortunate enough to do this project together with uh, ShopRite Checkers. And we've been doing it for the last two years on a commercial basis. And, uh, yeah... It's going very well. So if it's hydroponically grown, does that mean it's protected from the elements? You can sort of monitor it? You can keep it exactly as you want it? Yes. um, The controlled environment that it's in is only, it's under shade net. So it's not under greenhouses. It's under a shade net. So we are just keeping um, the hail, the hail and excessive big thunderstorms. We're keeping it away from that, that product. The thing about lettuce, let's move on to lettuce itself. Um, it, you know, it's a wonderful thing. It's fresh and crunchy and crisp and all those wonderful things. But uh, is it terribly popular in South Africa? How much lettuce do we move? Uh, iceberg lettuce is an extremely popular um, product in the South African consumer market. And it's looked at as a, a I wouldn't want to use the terminology as a cheap item, mm. but it's definitely an an affordable item that families, any family can afford to buy and put it on the, on the dinner table. And it's quite a filling, nutritious part of the meal and not a very expensive, you know, if you had to break down the cost of that meal. So, yeah. yes, we move a large volume of, of iceberg lettuce in the country. Well, uh, you, you, you highlight iceberg lettuce, but there are many different types of lettuce. There at El Dorado, yeah. fresh lettuce produce. How many different types do you produce? Uh, we specialize, in, we specialize in, in iceberg lettuce, so that's the head lettuce. Okay. And uh, that is predominantly used for the head in a pre-pack that's, that you commonly see across all the retail shelves as well as privately owned um, enterprises. 
And then you've got the fancy lettuce, which is the frilly, what we call frilly lettuce. Mm -hmm. And that is going into your pillar packs, your commonly ready-to-eat that you'll pick up at retailers as well. But we specialize in the iceberg lettuce. That's what Living Leaves is. Living Leaves is the concept of we've actually, we've actually innovated the, the ability to take iceberg out of the ground and put it into a hydroponic system, into a closed environment, into a protected environment and then produce a very high-quality, top-end quality to the customer seven days a week, okay. 365 days of the year. Oh, oh, really? So this means that you can do it year-round? Oh, that's, that's quite something. Yeah. What are you protecting it from, then? Is it climatic conditions, bugs, beetles? What, are, what is it being protected uh, from? Uh, iceberg lettuce, or the, let's call it the living leaves lettuce, is its most biggest sort of vulnerability is the weather. Uh, you know, very, you know, with a typical half-held thunderstorm, you can get 20, 30 mils in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That causes damage. Um, and then a common hailstorm, it doesn't matter what size the hailstorm is, but you're going to get damage on that product. So, it's a, it, albeit that it's a quick-growing product, up to eight weeks you'll have a harvest. So, from seedling to harvest is eight weeks. But within a few minutes, you can lose that production. Yeah, which is quite scary, isn't it? A bit like grapes. You say it's a quick growing eight weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, and then it's ready to go. I remember seeing a film once, and I'm sure you've seen it. It's, I can't remember what it's called, um, but it's about food production, and a, a terrifying shot of this great big sort of like harvester machine just mowing over a whole collection of lettuces and just beheading them um, in their hundreds. Do, how, how are they harvested? Do, are they hand-picked? Are they mechanically picked? No, we, we do all our harvesting by hand. So, yeah, we don't do mes- uh, mechanical harvesting. Um, I personally haven't seen a mechanically harvested iceberg lettuce, but I have seen mechanically harvested uh, fancy lettuce, but that goes directly into a processing factory. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, we think the, the film might have been called something like Food Inc. or, or Daily Bread. It was, a, it was a really scary movie. So it's hand-picked, it's, it's completely protected, and you mentioned there earlier that it, it's very nutritious. Now, another one of these myth conceptions, I suppose, is I've always thought it was just actually really water. Um, is it nutritious? What does a, what does a lettuce contain? It is. It, it's, it's very good. It's very nutritious for you, and it's also very healthy for you. It's uh, one of the top sort of uh, products that one can eat if one is watching one is health conscious mm. okay, because you can eat a lot of it and it's got zero fat in it. Um, it's a good filling agent. It's good roughage for you. Um, unfortunately, I don't have it in front of me of exactly what the nutrient breakdown mm. is, but it, uh, it is a good product for you. And how much do we eat here in South Africa? And we, but, you know, very often on the program we hear how much of our really good stuff, we were talking about fish early, earlier, and so much of our really top-quality product seems to go overseas. Well, how much of the lettuces that you're producing stay here in South Africa and how much do you export, if any? Oh, no. Uh, all, of our, all of our product from both companies, Eldorado and Living Leaves, is all produced for the local market. <clears throat> when I say local market for South Africa... Um, we, the only point of export will be going up into Africa. We don't do that directly. That will go through the open, the national open markets. That will go through, and then retail across the country, covering all the provinces. So, to my knowledge, there's very minimal amount of iceberg lettuce that is exported. 
I know there's a little bit of letters that he's flown up into the sort of Mauritius and that sort of the islands and that, but uh, by no means large volumes. All our letters that's produced in this country stays in this country. Yeah, so it's proudly South African, jolly nice. Absolutely, what, what, yeah. what about shelf life? You mentioned that some of the frilly lettuces go into those pillow packs that are, you know, it's already washed. All you've got to do is throw it into the salad bowl. It's always so hugely convenient. But I often wonder if it's if it's in a head as you get those packs, like you're describing with an iceberg, that it actually lasts a whole lot longer. If it's in a pillow pack, mm, you know, you've maybe got a couple of days and then it's all over. Yes, um, from a, that was the biggest breakthrough that we ha- that we had when it came to the Living Leaves product. As we presented it, I took it to to shop writers and I showed them and I said to them, if this product comes to you with the roots still on, and then the consumer takes it home and puts it into into just a, a glass of water, it's not necessarily going to carry on growing, but it's certainly going to stay fresher. And we've proved that, and we've got exceptionally long shelf life on it, where normal um, iceberg in a prepack would last anything between four to six days. The Living Leaf product is, is running anything between eight and ten days. Mm. So we've almost got to the point where we've doubled it. And then what's also the biggest advantage on the Living Leaf side is the consumer, if it's not a it's not a big household, it's a small household, it can take that product, put it in a, in a glass of water, put it in a cool environment, not in the fridge, but just put it in a cool environment. Yeah. That the, the consumer can actually take off that product, what what they want to eat that day, and then come tomorrow evening and, and remove some more leaves off it. Until, so instead of opening the packet, loading it, and then throwing the rest away, yeah. you're actually consuming that product over two to three to four days. And that, that has been a big winner for can, the consumer. Um, Ivo, have you got a website? Can people find out more? Unfortunately, oh, no, not. You're, you no. haven't got a website just yet. Yeah. Never mind. If anybody would like to know more, they can get in touch with us and we can put them in touch with you. Just lastly, Living Leaves, uh, I made the joke about it sounding a bit like a Bible, but is it is it a sort of job-creating project as well? Very much so. Mm. It's also a very sort of sustainable uh, job creation because because it's under protection. It's a, it's, it almost comes down, and they are saying the wrong way, but it becomes a factory. So you you know you know that you plant every week you plant the same amount and it goes through and, and and a couple of weeks later the product comes out again and you start the cycle again. You you've taken that weather cycle out of it. You know we've been in a situation where yeah, out in our open lands where le- uh, hail has come through and absolutely devastated the production, yeah. and that is you know start again. Yeah. So unfortunately so, that's not a great security job sort of thing, but uh, this is is securing the jobs in the sense that yeah. those people that are working in this environment know so that, it's a, you know, their jobs are not going to be put at risk because yeah. of the, the uh, weather element. Yeah, well, it's definitely a, a double win. We're win all round. So year-round lettuce, Living Leaves Project. If you go to ShopRite Checkers, will you will you see it labelled, Living Leaves pro- oh, uh, yes. Lettuce? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's, it's well labelled. There's two products from the Living Leaves uh, stable, if you would like to call it that. And that is the iceberg lettuce, so the head lettuce with its leaves with the roots on, and it's called Living Leaves. And then the second, the second product is the Living Leaves Salad Trio, um, which is three different types of fancy lettuce grown together. And that is our, our main focus on that was very simply to, to offer the consumer a living lettuce, a living fancy lettuce. So you can have mm. the same product that would be in a pillow pack, 
actually putting it in the living environment. And so the consumer's really got a fresh lettuce and a, and a selection of three varieties to put into a salad bowl. So, and it's working well there. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Evo, thank you very much. Very best of luck. And uh, I love what you do. And I'm going to go and rush off and see if I can find it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Take care. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks. Evo Roggin, and he's with Eldorado Fresh Lettuce Produce, also talking there about the Living Leaves project that you can find at ShopRite Checkers. Well, that's it. Thanks very much, team. Derek Fordyce and Kim Winter, and I'm Nancy Richardson. Standing by is Stephen Kirker. Stephen, I just have to say thank you very much. Uh, are you there, Stephen? Yes, uh, I am indeed. I wanted to say thank you very much for the piece that you sent me about CPOS, the robot cutter. I <laughs> thought it was very, very fascinating, the, the things people put their minds to to come up with, uh, ways of observing nature and uh, in, a, I suppose, a way which makes the fish not even realize they're there. <laughs> Absolutely. This is CPOS, I have to just quickly tell you, a four-finned omnidirectional robot built by undergraduate students, students at Zurich. He has 4,600 parts, and inside him is a live streaming video camera. What can I like say? He looks like a fish of sorts. He's, <laughs> he's amazing. Well, actually, what? You, Stephen, must, you must try and get a hold of those people and chat to them. They sound very interesting. They do, hey. Well, we'll see what we can do. Thanks very much. <laughs> Nancy, Take thank care. you very much. Catch you next uh, Thursday. It is a little bit after 10, uh, getting into SFM's nighttime music. Uh, first, though, news time.